Hello and welcome to Free Mississippi. I'm Douglas Carswell here at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy and today I'm talking to Aaron Rice. Hey Douglas, how you doing? Aaron is one of the, you are, I should say, one of the um, leading constitutional legal experts well, in the state of Mississippi. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I, I, I would say you're one of the, the leading constitutional lawyers in the country. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, but you're also actually, um, before any of that, mm -hmm. you are someone who served your country. You, you were yeah. a Marine. That's right. That's right. Tell us, why did you, why did you sign up? Well, um, well, September 11th uh, happened my senior year of high school. And so I was getting ready to go to college and all of that. But of course, that was a, a really big traumatic experience for our entire country and made me think about what I really wanted to do at that moment. And I was uh, a young man uh, of military age. And I felt like my country needed me, and and uh, and the world needed a response here. And so, um, you know, I just went to a recruiting station right then, and, and started the process of really you saw what happened on September the 11th, yep, and exactly. then you said, right, I'm going to I'm going to serve my country. I'm going to sign up then and that. That's exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, and like I said, I mean, it was um, I I understood uh, pretty quickly. I remember, um, you know, we were, I was a kid, 18 years old, and um, me and my peers had grown up in a time of relative peacetime. And so, you know, war seemed like something that happened in the history books. It didn't really happen today anymore. Of course, you know, to young people today, that would sound uh, absurd because they've grown up with wars constantly going on. But for my age group, it seemed, you know, kind of uh, uh, just not real. And so I remember a lot of my peers said, what do you think is going to happen after this? And I said, well, we're going to war. And a lot of them would laugh at that or scoff at that like we, we're not going to war that doesn't happen today but I just understood really quickly that this was we had been attacked on American soil and some you know we were going to have to have a, you know you, we were you, you suddenly realized our freedoms and the American way of life was no longer safe and you yep. decided to do something about it that's right so what was it like joining the Marines is that physically very tough yeah it's, it's, it's uh, physically very tough what I would say is um, you know if you any uh, uh, able-bodied person who really applies themselves and puts their mind to it and is committed to it can get through it, but it's definitely going to be a challenge. <laughs> that's Probably didn't sure. feel feel like you'll get through it at the time. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a, it's it's a big obstacle, and and definitely you know you're very proud when you do get through it. It's a, it's a big milestone. And then you were deployed to Iraq. You served in Iraq. That's and, right. And, and you got injured. That's right. So I went um, with the Third Battalion, 25th Marines, uh, which was an infantry battalion into Iraq, we went into a town called Haditha in the Alambar province of Iraq, which is West Iraq. It was really just the, the hot area of Iraq, and we probably went into the worst place of Iraq possible at the time. Our battalion actually wound up being the hardest hit battalion in the entire Iraq war. We lost uh, more Marines and had more casualties there than any battalion in the entire war. So we got there and just kind of immediately um, you know, started getting hit by insurgents uh, very frequently, and I was one of the early casualties of our deployment. We were uh, on, a, on a, um, a patrol. We were actually going to, to reclaim a Ford operating base and we navigated through the open desert trying to avoid these kind of attacks, um, but unbeknownst to us, um, came into a minefield that had been set for that very purpose near the Ford operating base. So my Humvee that I was driving hit an anti-tank landmine, basically ripped the entire front of the Humvee off and with it, it took my left leg below the knee. And so I was medevaced out to uh, field hospital in, in Iraq and then to Launstuhl, Germany, um, where I underwent a lot of surgery and then ultimately back to the United States. Okay. And there was presumably a recovery process and you were cared yeah. for as a... As yeah, a that's right. It, I was in uh, D.C. for nine months um, as an inpatient and an outpatient at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Um, and my wife was able to join me there and got great care, excellent care. 
uh, from the military and was able to, to rehabilitate uh, completely to the point where, you know, uh, two months after getting a prosthetic leg, I ran a 10-mile race in Washington, D.C. So, wow. you know, completely today. So you're, still, you're running races now? Uh, I, I haven't run a race in a while, but I, I still run and I'm active and do any sports or anything I want to do. There's nothing that I say, oh, I can't do that because I have a prosthetic leg. And you really appreciate American Liberty and you signed up to do something about yep. it. Do you think that also explains why you decided to focus on defending American liberties, not not militarily, yeah. but through the courts? I think very much so. I mean, you know, the, the, the two go hand in hand in some respects. I joined the military because I already had an appreciation of how great our country is the rights and freedoms we have, the limits on government power that we have, and the system of government we have that's just genius and, and wanted to defend that. But of course, uh, really entrenched that desire during that deployment. And really, I was able to see as a young man, really how special it was that the rest of the world doesn't have this, that the rule of law did not exist in Iraq, limits on government power didn't exist, rights for the people didn't exist. There was a dictator there that ultimately led to people like me being there and then an insurgency and anarchy. So. I mean, even speaking as a Brit, yeah. um, you know, people in Britain sometimes say, almost with a sense of pride, we, we don't have a constitution in Britain. Yeah, yeah. And uh, people think it's, it's somehow a mark of our sophistication mm -hmm. not to have a constitution because there's no one document that we can point to yeah. that defines powers. But actually, over the past year with COVID and the, the lockdowns, mm -hmm. I think actually we see the superiority of the American system where yeah. you have got a constitution. Because yeah. In Britain, you can't appeal to the Constitution to defend yourself against politicians. Yeah. But here in America, not just in at a federal level, but at a, at a state level, yeah. you, you can. And this is, this is what you now do. You defend people's yes. freedoms by it, looking at what yeah. the Constitution enshrines. And isn't that incredible? I mean, sometimes I have to stop and think about it again, that we live in a country where any person on the street can take their government to a court and say, my rights are being violated and I want this to stop. And be hurt. Uh, you know, they may or may not prevail, but they can do that. And that's an amazing thing about our government and the way we operate. So access to justice mm -hmm. is the key to this. Yes. And the unit here, the, the, the division here that you head up, yeah. specialized in doing that, you take up cases on behalf of ordinary folk out there who've had their rights violated. Tell us, give us some examples of this. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things we work on a lot is just defending entrepreneurs and their right to work. I mean, that's something that is under assault, sadly, in America and around the rest of the world, as special interest groups learn that they can, uh, you know, ask the government to impose greater and greater barriers to work, uh, really to serve their own interest. And so, um, kind of becoming clients of the government and asking for, for more and more protection from competition. And so, we are uh, very interested in reducing those barriers and, and giving people the right to work and, and having that right recognized as a strong right, both in the federal constitution and our state constitution. And so, you know, an example of that in, in a case for an entrepreneur is we have a client who grew up in Nepal, uh, um, you know, doing this practice called eyebrow threading, which has become very popular in the United States now. But for a long time, it was, you know, countries in the Middle East and Forgive East me, what Asia. exactly is it's, it's literally taking a loop of cotton thread and having it on your fingers and having a knot in the middle and manipulating it in such a way that the knot moves back and forth and just pulls out hair when it does it. And it's just... Maybe I should try that sometime. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly should. But, uh, but, you know, it's just become very popular. It's yeah. superior to waxing and tweezing and things like that. And it's really caught on. And our client had grown up doing it. It's a very safe practice. You don't even touch the customer when you do it. And I saw an opportunity to open a business. She did that and was an overnight success with it, was, uh, was doing very well. And then realized that our government didn't want her to be able to just open a business like that. And 
It was really, there were rules that were designed to keep competitors like her out. And, you know, it was so absurd that she would have to spend ten to $15,000 and go through 600 hours of training to get a license, but not, not one minute of that training would teach her anything about eyebrow threading. I mean, the rule wasn't really there to teach about eyebrow threading, it was just to keep eyebrow threaders like her out. It's a purely protectionist measure. Exactly, exactly. Wow. And so we filed a lawsuit for her and, you know, and have been able to successfully defend her right. She is back working today. She has reopened her business. She is employing other people and she's doing great. And that's the kind of thing we love to see is someone who's able to get back to work. But the thing is, as a constitutional litigation center, it has a ripple effect. It doesn't just affect our client who's named Deepa Batari or just eyebrow threaders who are now able to work. We're setting precedents in the court that can be used by analogy to help other entrepreneurs. This is fascinating because traditionally think tanks have tended to slightly have their head in the clouds. They'll yeah. think about abstractions. They'll talk about the founding principles. Yeah. What you're doing is you're taking those and actually improving the lives of ordinary folk, yeah. everyday lives, people who've got a practical problem and you're, 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 you're leading to actual Pragmatic That's business. right, and you really need a group like ours to do this because you know big uh, big businesses, as I mentioned earlier, and special interest groups already lobby the government. They already have their own attorneys; they'll be just fine. But a lot of times, for a case like this, there's there's no money to be made in this. I mean, you're not asking you know for a million dollars in damages; you're just asking for the right to work. And it's going to be hard to find an attorney who can take that on and make any money on the case. So you have a nonprofit constitutional litigation center like us that is not necessarily incentivized by the profit motive, but it's incentivized to see good law and to defend the Constitution, and we can do that. It's amazing. I've, I've been in this role now for just over a month, yeah. and the thing that's really struck me about Mississippi is it's, it's a wonderful place to live in so many ways, so many wonderful things about it, but the economy is not nearly as free as I thought it would yeah. be. You've got all these hidden restrictions, yeah. and they've been written clearly probably by, by lobbyists, vested yeah. interests. And it doesn't just rig the market in eyebrow threading, yeah. it does it in all sorts of ways. One thing that we really suffer from in this state is relatively bad health outcomes. Yeah. And yet I can't help noticing doctors tend to do quite well. Yeah. And it seems as if there's all sorts of restrictions that rigs the healthcare market. Yes, there is. What are we, what, what are we able to do about yeah. that? So uh, right now we have a case where we're uh, representing someone who's a physical therapist and he wants to open what's called a home health agency, which is badly needed in the state. Uh, we're a rural state and you need to be able to get out to people, and especially during COVID when people are afraid to go to nursing homes, afraid to go to places like that because there's outbreaks there, to be able to come into the home and provide some care for them there. And he wants to do that. But um, like you said, we have a certificate of need system, which makes it very difficult to get a, a kind of permission slip to open one this of those anyway. This is a certificate of need known as a con. That's right, a con. A con by name, con by nature. Yeah, that's right. It, it is very much is a con. And basically, essentially, your competitors have to agree to let you into the market is what it boils down to and can fight you in court to keep you out. And so you have that to begin with. But then on top of that, we've had for 40 years in Mississippi a moratorium on that con for home health agencies, which means it's literally impossible to open a home health agency in Mississippi, and it has been for 40 years. This is the sort of thing you would expect to found in sort of Eastern Europe. Soviet Russia yeah. is where you would expect to see this. I mean, very, it's very central planning. There's a bureaucratic agency that sits around and uses all of these metrics and all of this uh, gobbledygook to decide whether the market really needs you or not. But the, the wonderful thing about the free market is in order to get permission to do something, you need these things called customers. customers who and want to if pay there for are customers it. and they're yeah. willing to pay for it, you have permission to do That's it. That's right. And we I, we would see a lot 
more vibrant healthcare economy in Mississippi and, and a lot more access to healthcare and decreased prices yeah. for healthcare if we would stop doing this kind of thing. And so, but we're taking the opportunity here to try to dismantle one part of that. What about things like religious freedom? I mean, yeah. the Second Amendment, First Amendment, yeah. these are, you know, the Bill of Rights That's is right. called, it's actually inspired by the, 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 the British Bill of Rights. Yeah. Um, but how how is it that in this day and age, those First and Second Amendment rights are still needing to be asserted. Yeah, Give it, us examples. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's it's hard to imagine. But um, so obviously, COVID has affected a lot of things, and so we had to get involved and file a lawsuit for a church um, because the a, a mayor in their city decided that you couldn't even have drive-in church services, and the mayor well understood that what uh, I love churches, America, a drive-in church, drive church service, <laughs> and what what these churches were doing was having cars come into the parking lot park uh, two parking spaces away from each other with their windows rolled up, stay in the car. Some of them would use a loudspeaker so you could hear through the window. Some would do it over the radio. Some would just have pastors that could preach very loudly and you could hear them <laughs> through the windows. But it was obviously the safest thing in the world for you to do. Yeah. And this mayor, you know, for whatever reason, really wanted to, uh, to show how serious he was and decided you couldn't do that and had the cops uh, citing people and threatening people for doing that. And so we got involved and filed a lawsuit that mayor understood very quickly that he had gotten himself in trouble and rescinded that order. As to the Second Amendment and, uh, and even our gun rights here in Mississippi under the Mississippi Constitution, um, we had another mayor that decided we have a uh, constitutional right under our Mississippi Constitution to openly carry weapons. And it, it literally makes it clear that the government can't even regulate that. The government can regulate the concealed carry of weapons, but not the open carry. Because the, the old thinking was that open carry is pretty safe. Everybody knew that you were armed. What was dangerous was concealed carry. Somebody didn't even know you were armed. But it's a right that we have that can't even be regulated. And our mayor decided, uh, despite that, that he would unilaterally decide that you, nobody could openly carry during uh, the COVID. As well known, viruses, this is how to fight a virus. Yeah, exactly. Something, you know, uh, somehow that will help the virus. Uh, and again, it was, you know, it seemed a little bit of political posturing or something to that effect. But whatever the motives were, it was unconstitutional. And so we got involved there, filed a lawsuit too, and, and were able to get a court to rule that the, the city of Jackson can never, ever, ever do that again. The only way that they can is if the Mississippi Constitution is amended, which uh, does not look likely. So, so, and if they do that again, it won't even have to be litigated whether that order violated the Mississippi Constitution or not. It can be immediately enforced and, and actually result in jail time for any government officials to try that again. It's interesting, coming from outside, I know that the issue of gun rights excites a great deal of liberal opinion mm -hmm. amongst the commentariat classes in, yeah. in the east coast of the US and yeah. like Britain. But despite having these freedoms yeah. that allow people to open carry, I've not seen a single firearm in the state of Mississippi apart from a, a couple of police officers yeah. since I've been here. It's one of those things, it's almost as if people are free to do it, but because people are free to do it, very few people actually do yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it's a little more of a boogeyman than anything else for the left sometimes. They do worry about that, but you know what you really have is uh, for the most part you have people concealed carrying and things like that for personal protection, you have people hunting, you have all of that, all of which is guaranteed in our constitution that yeah. people are allowed to do. Yeah. Um, talk about some of the other things that, that uh, we've been doing. We talked about um, uh, religious liberty, yeah. we talked about, are there, are there other, other? Yeah, well we, we have gotten involved uh, in defending charter schools, uh, just a school choice in Mississippi. We worked with the Attorney General's office and some other groups to defend our charter school laws that were under attack. We've only got six charter schools in the whole state. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an early program. That's right, that's right. And so we had some groups come in and try to sue to strike down our charter school laws. So we actually helped defend uh, some laws in, in that instance. Um, we've worked on free speech. So we've had 
um, a, another mayor who uh, passed an ordinance and a city council who passed an ordinance that made it basically illegal to have conversations near an abortion clinic. Um, and so we filed a lawsuit in that case, which resulted in the city rescinding its ordinance. Um, and we've uh, gotten involved in property rights issues. I mean, we uh, advocated and were able to basically stop the government from reauthorizing a practice called administrative forfeiture, which allows the government to take property without judicial involvement, and so things like that. Now, I've noticed since we've been talking, we've yeah. actually rebranded our, <laughs> our, our, our think tank. We yeah. were the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. We're now MacBook Air. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Some will say it's an improvement. Yeah. But um, now, um, just before we sort of wind up, I've done a lot of work with think tanks in the UK, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of think tanks in the US. Um, the problem with being a think tank is you're trying to engage opinion, you're trying to influence opinion, yeah. but fundamentally, if public policymakers want to ignore you, they can. Yeah. We're different because we've got this sort of, well, it's the equivalent of having a nuclear weapon. Yeah. People have yeah. to take it seriously. Yeah. Explain a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. That's It's an important tool to have, um, you know, the ability, I mean, you can ignore a white paper or you know, a video on social media, but you really can't ignore a subpoena. And so, you know, there's a distinction there in that um, that not every matter of public policy is something that goes so far that, um, you know, arguably violates the Constitution and can be brought into court. But when we're talking about uh, things our government ha has done or is trying to do that does go that far beyond the pale, you know, we have another tool. We don't just have to ask politely. We can, we can sue on behalf of clients and, and force the government. Um, you know, and again, that's a that is something that I think is beautiful about our design and our system is that we have courts of law that are there to hear those disputes and to rule on them. And the political branches of government are not, you know, just sovereign. They're not a king. They can't just do whatever they want. They can be forced to abide by the limits on power that are enshrined in our Constitution. It's interesting. Often you hear people talking about the American system as being litigious, as yeah. though that's a bad thing. Yeah. But what I'm starting to realize is, so long as justice is affordable and yeah. accessible to ordinary folk, being able to litigate against politicians yeah. is a very good thing. That's a very good thing. And you know, it's interesting, I mean, sometimes people don't realize it, but we don't even sue for money. You know, I mean, we, we literally don't even ask for money when we file a lawsuit. We only ask for the government to stop doing the unconstitutional <laughs> thing it's doing and for a court to force them to do that. But in order to be able to do this, we rely on local donations, That's right. local we need, uh, we, Donors allow us to do this. I mean, we're representing a client for free. We're not being paid to do it. Are the, the attorneys that we have uh, are, are not you know are not paid by the client, and the only way to do that is for donors to step in and, and allow us to do it. I'm going to finish off with a couple of quick questions. If there was one constitutional amendment yeah. in either Mississippi or the United States, um, what would it be? What would you? Oh, uh, uh, amendment. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm going to borrow a phrase from uh, from somebody who is actually an advisor to the Mississippi Justice Institute, Ilya Shapiro. Uh, who's at the Cato Institute, and he always says that we need a constitutional amendment that just says, and we mean it. So everything that we've already <laughs> said in the Constitution, we really meant it. Well, just I, abide by that. I was hoping you yeah. would say repeal the amendment that allows the collection of a federal income tax. Yeah, no, that would be, that, be a great one too. And that was an add-on to our federal Constitution <laughs> yeah. at some point. So. So, some would say that's where the rot set in. That, yeah, that's Once right. That that's right. Yeah. Um, and if there was one law you could pass in the state of Mississippi, what would it be? Hmm, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I don't know that I have an answer for that right now. There's so many things that there's so there's so much to do. You know, I think I think it would be um, I don't know exactly what shape it would take, but but it would be a, a law that that made clear 
that these kind of restrictions we talked about that make it difficult for entrepreneurs that those have to end. And, and we have seen some progress in our state legislature to say, look, you have to have you know, real demonstrable harm that's out there in the public, yeah. and you have to use the most narrowly tailored means to address that harm, and that's a good thing. We need to go further than that, and we need to put some teeth into that. Aaron, thank you so much for yep. being on our pilot show. Yep. It's been wonderful. Um, keep up the good work, and I hope you'll come back on to update us after we've won some of these court cases. Yeah, we'll do. Thank, thank you. you.